The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. All right. Good morning, friends. Good to see all of you. I praise God for you. I'm Pastor Vince, if you don't know that. Uh, I handle most of the Bible teaching around here, and that's what I'm up here to do, and I'm excited to do it with you. So uh, we're in Mark 5 today, if you would start turning there. Uh, We're continuing in our series. It's called Servant King. We're just working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we've had a great time so far, and uh, we're hitting some very well-known verses today, uh, and they're well-known for a reason, because they're precious and beautiful and exciting, and uh, I hope it has all of that effect on us today, stirring us to a greater affection for Christ and excitement about telling people how good he is. Amen? A couple quick things to let you know as you're turning there. We're in Mark 5. We're going to start in verse 21 uh, and work to the end of the chapter, okay? So a couple things to let you know. First of all, um, October 4th, okay, so that's a few Sundays from now, we're going to do child dedication, okay? So if you have a a little one you would like to dedicate to the Lord, um, that's the day, okay? October 4th. So trying to give you guys some Heads up on that, and if you have questions about what we mean by child dedication, I don't want to take a ton of time right now to work on that. If you have questions, see someone in the Connection Center afterwards, or come grab me, and we'll, we'll work through what that means. But uh, it's, it's just really, bottom line, it's a great time for the parents to stand up before the congregation, declare their intent to raise their children to know and love and serve Jesus, okay? And uh, for the congregation to agree with them in faith about that. All right, so that's that. Uh, Also, as we've been saying for weeks now, uh, today, after the service, we're going to have a members meeting, okay? So who's that for? That's for those who are members. That's for those who are in the process of becoming members. Or if you've you've just kind of been tiptoeing around the edge of it, but your intention is to work through that process, we will welcome you into this meeting as well. So the goal is for me to uh, preach not quite as long as normal, which, uh, you know, odds are that that may not go well, but I'm going to do my best, and then uh, we'll dismiss, to, you know, take five minutes for those who aren't staying for the meeting to go ahead and go. They can uh, grab their children if they want, and then uh, the rest of us will have that meeting. It shouldn't take very long, okay? Praise the Lord for all that stuff. Let's get into God's Word. So I told you we're in Mark 5. We're going to read verses 21 uh, through 43, all the way to the end of the chapter. You guys ready? Let's do it. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, who touched me? 
And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and took his companions and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Praise God for his word. Amen. Okay, a lot going on here. First thing I want to point out, because it's a little, might be a little confusing to our modern ears because we're not aware of some of the tradition here, in case I forget to say it later, uh, and that's me prepping you for the fact that I might repeat myself later, but I just want to make sure, so there, there, he's, he pulls up on this thing in Jairus' house and he's saying there's a commotion and there's weeping and wailing, right, because this little girl has died, and it's interesting that, you know, he, he says, why are you guys making such a commotion? She hasn't died, she's asleep, and then it says they started laughing. And it's like, that's confusing, right? Because if you could, like, put yourself there, you got the good people, you're assuming it's the family there, and, and this little girl is dead, and just from Jesus saying that, everyone turns to laughing. It's like, what, what are we dealing with here? We got a bunch of psychopaths or what? Not, no, probably not. The, the reality is in that day, it's kind of a strange custom, but here's the reality. People's kind of um, status was, was somewhat determined by how much mourning there was surrounding their death. And so people would actually hire professional mourners. And that's very likely who was here already kind of wailing and making a big commotion were people that were hired to do that, kind of to honor the fact that this girl was dead. And so they were the ones that started chuckling at Jesus uh, and then promptly got put out, which I like that part. Uh, Jesus rolls up, you know, with all the authority he has and says, off with you. So they got kicked out. But that's who's laughing, probably not the family. Because I know I, coming up and just learning the Bible, I would read that and go, that's a weird family. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, but what we have here in these verses is two miracles, and we got two very different people. And, and we are meant to see multiple stark contrasts here that, that maybe wouldn't jump out at us, but it's really important that we do see them. So that's what we're going to focus on is seeing. We, we got two miracles, but it's really... The, the contrast between the two people that, that teaches us a lot about who, who the servant king is and how he rolls and how he deals with people. So I'm going to give you some of those, those contrasts between the two. The first, so we have, we have Jairus, right, who is a, an official, a synagogue official, and we have the woman who has this issue of blood for 12 years. We're never given her name. So we, we have Jairus who is likely wealthy, if he's a synagogue official, uh, he's probably wealthy. At, it's very safe to say at least what we would consider middle class. 
Okay? So he's well-respected in the community. He's a guy that everybody knows. Uh, he would have had something to do with kind of organizing and overseeing what was going on in the synagogue. Maybe some overlap with what you would think the duties of a pastor would be. Uh, a guy that people looked up to, a guy that people knew, respected. And in this context, he, he, he probably, you know, he was able to afford to have the professional mourners there already. Uh, he probably was someone that had means. On the other hand, we have the woman who was, at, we're given very clear indication of where she's at in terms of socioeconomic status. She had, she had spent all that she had, right? Everything. In order to try to find uh, healing from this hemorrhage, which was uh, almost certainly had something to do with uh, a, a, a constant menstrual flow. And we need to say that because that puts her in a category uh, in terms of the, the community around her as well, because Old Testament law... Uh, would have, that would have meant she had, was unclean for the entire time that she had, which meant she, there was some ostr- you know, ostrac- her, she would be ostracized and there would be some, um, you know, she would be kind of, kind of held out to the edge and to the margins, which meant she really had no business uh, being all up in this crowd. Had someone recognized her, it would have gone really bad for her. So she's poor. Uh, we have somebody that's got money and is respecting the community. We got somebody that's poor that nobody maybe even knows who she is anymore because she's been ostracized and held out to the margins. Okay, and, and what do we see here? We see that Jesus loved and served them both. Jesus loved and served them both. And I'm not sure if if everybody is is as aware of the forces of darkness and their attempt to divide us by certain metrics that, that we allow ourselves to be divided by. But um, this does happen. There, there, are, there are a lot of folks, whether it's explicit or, or implicit, we, we, have these, we have these biases oftentimes where we, we know who we are and we, we see ourselves in a certain group and, and we, tend to, we just tend to think that people in our group are better <laughs> on multiple levels and we tend to see people in other groups as not so much. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you're like, well, I don't know, I've never seen anything like that, or I've never heard anything like that. Well, I, I can just tell you that that is a reality. I saw an example of it. I heard an example of it this week. Uh, many of you know that I'm, I, I'm bivocational, so I, I fix broken things. Uh, I do, like, industrial and residential maintenance. And so I'm in this big um, building, and I'm, I'm fixing a plug. And so I, I go into this, this space where people are working and uh, I'm fixing a plug. So I'm down on my knees, kind of out of sight, and I'm doing my thing. Not trying to over here, but there's two people talking, and they're just right there. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just doing my thing, and they're talking. And uh, they, were, they were younger, probably in their uh, you know, low to mid-20s, which it's interesting as I think about the fact that I think of that as younger now. It's <clears throat> yeah, so that's good. Um, but <laughs> I don't care. Getting old's great. Uh, I'm having fun. But I'm listening to their conversation and uh, lit- literally heard them say this, that they, they thought that rich people were the only ones, wealthy people were the only ones that recover from COVID-19. This was a real conversation that I was listening to. And I kept my mouth shut and just fixed my outlet and left. No amen, no applause, no nothing. I'm going to clap for myself. Thank you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
This stuff is out there, and it's not, it's not just from that end of the spectrum, okay? Here's, here's, maybe you don't know, and, and I know a lot of people only know folks kind of in their own socioeconomic class, and that, that's a bummer. I think we should work to change that, honestly, because that's, that's part of the issue, uh, is we just don't know people different than us a lot of times. But I, I personally know many of the poorest people in Cincinnati. I can tell you their names, and I can tell you their stories. I know where they sleep. I know where they are. I know what they do. I can tell you their whole story. But I also know a ton of really wealthy people, many of the richest people in Cincinnati. And here's what I'm here, what I'm here to say is the deceptive stereotypes that we are being fed by Satan in order to divide and conquer us are untrue. They're not true. Jesus made no distinction here between this woman that was dirt poor and ostracized and this guy that everybody knew and was respected and had enough money to have professional mourners at his daughter's funeral. I mean, lickety split, right? They may have even popped up there just knowing that guy's got money. If we go there and start crying, he'll pay us. It's weird, I know. I mean, don't, you know, I'm hoping to have more of a party type feel whenever the Lord takes me home. Just, I'm putting that out there now so you guys know, Okay. If you're around when it happens, I'm expecting to be looking down on a jamboree uh, much more than a bunch of people crying and boohooing, okay? All right. Uh, we got to think about death different when we belong to Christ, but anyways. Uh, so here, here's the thing. Here's, here's things that I've seen. I want you to know this, this is true. And if you're like, well, maybe he's making that up, come ask me. I'll give you details. I promise. I have seen poor people give the very last little bit that they had to help someone else. I've seen that on multiple occasions. I have seen rich people sacrifice greatly to help someone else. I have seen poor people fight over the last pair of shoes we had to give out at an outreach. I've seen that happen. But I've also seen a rich person take the shoes off of their feet and give them to somebody because we didn't have any more to give out. I've had to, on multiple occasions, Check poor people. You know what I mean when I say check? That's kind of, I'm kind of that's slang there. That's me saying, hold on a second. Let me, let me help you with something. I've had to check poor people because they were bad-mouthing rich people as if they're all evil. I've had to check rich people who talk as if poor people are all lazy or stupid. And, and just so you know, I got no problem checking poor people or rich people. So if you're in here and you're one or the other and you think you're more or less likely based on that to get checked if you're around me, just try. I have fed a guy off the back of my truck who had a PhD and every advantage in life. And yet he was still standing there needing to eat a meal off the back of a truck. Our ministry has also been supported by rich people who came up in the most difficult circumstances you could possibly imagine. And yet today, have enough wealth and resources at their disposal to support ministries and help others. We, in our short-sighted foolishness, we buy into the lie that socioeconomic status determines whether someone is righteous or not. It doesn't. It doesn't. There are wicked rich and there are wicked poor. There are righteous rich and there are righteous poor. The Bible sees the nuance of that. and understand. We, we like to silo things and make it more simple. Depending on where you sit on the socioeconomic ladder, you are more, and maybe you don't say it, 
But, but somewhere back in your brain, you, you, are, you are likely to see people that are on a different spot than you on the socioeconomic ladder as either good or wicked, depending on how close they are to you. Righteous or not. Uh, and that's not the case. The only way anyone rich or poor is truly righteous and not just self-righteous is by realizing their need for Jesus. Just like Jairus and just like the woman that had this issue of blood. That's the reality. That's the truth of the matter. Amen. So Jesus loved and served them both. Two people from two very different situations. There's a lot we can learn from that. A lot of self-examination we can do from that. Amen? Amen. The second thing I want to point out to you, and this is less of a contrast and just something actually one of the few things you see that they both had in common. Neither one of them had the kind of faith that the centurion we see in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, same story, uh, neither of them had the faith he had. You remember that story? The centurion comes up to Jesus and says, listen, I'm a man, I, I understand authority. When I, tell a tr- when I tell my troops to go or come, they go and come. So what I'm asking for you to do, I've got this servant at home that's sick, I'm, I'm asking you to just say the word and I know he'll be healed. And what, what was Jesus' reaction to that guy, the centurion? It was like, it's one of the few times in the scriptures where you, you get the idea that Jesus' jaw drops. The Bible says he marveled at this guy's faith. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, that's not the case with either of these. Jairus comes, and what does he say? He falls down at Jesus' feet. He's got that part right. Even though he's, he's this respectable guy, and, and a bunch of his buddies over at the synagogue would not be happy that he's out here messing around with this Jesus guy. You understand that, right? Taking a big risk. But your daughter's laying on her deathbed. You tend to take risks maybe you wouldn't otherwise. Right? He, he gets down on his knees, but what does he say? Lord, I, I need you to come, and I need you to touch her. Right? That's, that's, he, so he had faith. It wasn't like the centurion's faith, though. He did believe if Jesus came and he touched her, and, and who knows where that came from? What, what, what example was he using? What was he thinking of? We don't know, but that's where his faith was at, okay? Where was the woman's faith? She, what she had reasoned in her mind, right? The reason she's sneaking through this crowd hoping nobody knows who she is, her reasoning was, and the Bible lays it out for us, thankfully, if I can just get up and touch his clothes, I'll be healed, right? Here's what's precious to me about that. We, we, see the centur- we see the centurion's faith is the faith that Jesus marvels at and is looking for. But, but what did he do with these people with a, a faith of lesser fullness than the centurions come to him? Jairus, you got to come, master, and touch my daughter so she'll be healed. Or, or this other woman who comes and, well, i got to touch it. If I can just touch his clothes, then I'll be healed. What did, how did Jesus deal with them? Did he, did he refuse them because they weren't at, at the place where the centurion was in terms of their faith? No, he did not. He met them where they were. He had compassion on them where they were. And boy, does that have some implications. For you, first of all, right? For me, first of all, because i got to be honest, my faith isn't always that super centurion faith when I'm going through stuff. Am I the only one? Am I alone on that? I didn't think so. So that means something for me, but it also means something for the way I look at other people and decide whether or not Jesus is going to help them. Neither one of them 
we're at, we're at super faith level. But man, Jesus in his great, great love and compassion served them both on their terms. He had, to, he had to move from his understanding of what could bring their healing to theirs. And he did. Came down to their level. Mm, mm, mm. That is good. One, one of these, Jairus, he had no problem coming to Jesus publicly. Right? No problem. But Jesus, what did he do with, as he met the need Jairus came about? He met Jairus' need privately. What did he do? He brought Peter, James, and John, and he let mom and dad come in. Everybody else, what did he do? Get out, right? Jairus comes publicly, falls, because he can, and comes and falls publicly in, in front of everybody. He says, Jesus, come, come touch my daughter. What does Jesus do? He, he ends up there, but he, he kicks everybody out, and he says, nobody say anything about this. He comes publicly, Jesus heals that girl privately. On the other hand, you have the woman with the issue of blood who tries to just get in touch and go, right? But Jesus, but Jesus messed her plan up. Because she touches him, turns and starts to, starts to dip out, and Jesus goes, whoa! Who touched me? Can you imagine? Can you imagine her just free, as the crowd, as the whole crowd, you know, just it's all hustle and bustle and everybody's trying to press in, and, and, G, and, and you know, Jesus is doing his thing. She touches, she touches the hem of his garment, and he responds, hey, who touched me? Can you imagine the, crowd, the whole crowd just, you know, this is the miracle work. This is the guy that just calmed the storm and healed the demoniac on the other side of the, 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 the thing, man. He, he's already done all this stuff. And, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, <laughs> really want to help, master, but I don't know what you are talking about because there's a lot of people touching you. But she knew. And so he, where she tried to get in and out privately, he stopped and he made it. He made it public. Now everybody, where was everybody's eyes now? On this woman. And why did he do that? Did Jesus do that to shame her? Did Jesus do that to embarrass her? No, 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 no. Because what, what, what did this allow to happen as she realized that she felt in her body, the scriptures say, that that healing that she was hoping for had happened. She knew what she came for, what she'd hoped for had happened. She had to come and, and fall back at his feet. And it says she told the whole truth. But imagine. Imagine how she's feeling in that moment. And imagine all of these factors. And what, is, what does Jesus do? We see the only time in the whole scriptures where he uses the, this designation to speak to a woman. He says, daughter. Daughter. You can go in peace now. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. You're healed of this affliction. Daughter. Jesus didn't want her to come and think because of some superstition. And that's the thing we got to remember, man. People, people are coming to Jesus all different kinds of ways and for all different kinds of reasons. And in his great, gracious mercy, he'll meet us where we're at. Even if it isn't, even if it isn't centurion faith, even if all the theological stuff hasn't totally worked out yet, if, we're just, if we know we need him, if someone knows that they need him and they're coming to him, he will meet them where they're at. And he'll go even farther than that. 
He'll help to shape and form and bring, bring that faith more into the line of reality of how good he really is. She might have thought, man, he's, 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 yeah, sure, he's a miracle worker. I've heard that he heals sicknesses, but she didn't know. She didn't know this was God Almighty. She didn't know this was a perfect representation of the Father walking in the flesh that was going to turn around and say to her, daughter, rejected one, the one who nobody's wanted anything to do with for so long. Let me tell you something. I want something to do with you. There is, there's something here more than just you got something from me and ran. You belong to me. I love you. You're mine and I'm yours. That's the Jesus we're dealing with. He's not just, he's not just a, a, a miracle worker. Mm. No, he's a good God. Faithful Savior. One tried to be healed. One came publicly, got healed privately. One tried to catch a private healing and it became public. Come on now. One, Jairus was about to lose what had brought him joy for 12 years, his daughter. The other was about to be freed from 12 years of torture. Have you ever caught that? It's only recently that I did. It's just a little blurb at the end. I've always, I've always remembered the woman had the issue of blood for 12 years. I don't know why that fact always comes out of the story more prominently. But one thing that I, I didn't notice for a long time as a young Christian was that this little girl was also 12 years old. You think that's a coincidence? Come on now. Same, same day, every, the whole situation gets all tangled up where Jairus is coming just at the time this woman sneaks through the crowd and touches the cloak. And just so happens she's had this issue of blood for 12 years and this little girl is 12 years old. There's, there's, I've been praying, every, you know, I, several weeks I've been looking at these verses. I'm asking the Holy Spirit. I, I think there's probably something deeper to that than I even understand yet. And I'm just going to leave that on the shelf and ask him to reveal it to me. I don't, I'm not into numerology and all that. You can get into some weird stuff with that. So let me just say that out loud. But that's not a coincidence. I'm telling you that right now. That those two, that, why did it mention that specifically those numbers Well, part of it is just so that we see this contrast. Jairus came to understand his need for Jesus because one of the greatest joys in his life he was about to lose. He'd had that little girl for 12 years, rejoicing in all that a little daughter brings to a daddy's heart. Right? This woman, on the other hand, was was being freed from what had been a living hell, a, a living torture chamber, basically, for 12 years. It's, it's interesting, those, the, the dynamic contrast between those two is that both things led these folks to their need for Jesus. They both came to understand they needed Christ. Which, again, as we're working through the book of Mark, and as that idea that much of what Jesus was doing and the way he did it and the way God orchestrated things to happen that Jairus' daughter was going to get healed the same day as this woman with the issue of blood. And they both, that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old, that the woman with the issue of blood had had that issue for 12 years. All that orchestration, all God was doing and weaving that together over and over again, this theme that we're seeing, and I keep telling you every week, and I'm going to keep telling you every week because this theme is the, the, what, what is the big point, man? The big point of the scriptures is that we need Jesus, it's that we need God. And you might say, well, man, can't you, can't you come up with some other points? Yeah, I mean, there are a few. Yes, there are some auxiliary things, but the big bottom line that we got to come to that we need to understand is that we need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. Not just once, but every day. Every hour, right? Amen. Well, that gets repetitive. Good. Awesome. 
I'm glad you noticed. (laughs) Think about it more than just when I'm saying it. When I've got your attention for an hour or so once a week, think about it all the time. Amen. I need him. And that, that kind of brings us to the big picture of what we see in this series of miracles in Mark 5. And it's something I'm not sure that we would pick up on. I kind of mentioned it a little bit. I, I, I point out that this, the hemorrhage spoken of had probably to do with a, a heavy or a, an inordinate menstrual flow, which would have, according to Old Testament law, would have put that woman in a class of being unclean. It's very interesting that just before this, uh, on, the other side of the, uh, on the other side of the lake, when they were over in the Decapolis, that Jesus brought healing to the two demoniacs who were, what were they? They were stripped naked. They were running around cutting themselves all the time. And where did they live? They lived among the tombs. Okay? So those guys were ritually and ceremonially unclean out there touching, being among the dead all the time. So you got unclean, demon-possessed guys. You got this woman, issue of blood. What does society think of her? Unclean. And then, who's the last one? This little girl that, by the time Jesus gets to her, let's just be clear. When Jesus said she's asleep, not really dead, you understand she had really died, right? The the, the miracle here is, is Jesus raising this girl from the dead. So if she's dead and dead bodies are ceremonially and ritually unclean, where, what, what, now, now Jesus comes into a third situation with what? It's un, she's unclean. So we got demon-possessed guys up in the tombs, unclean. We got the woman with the issue of blood, unclean. We got this little girl who now has died, unclean. And what does that mean? That means the people around, the people in that time, the cultural context around them, what they would have decided when they, when everyone in the Decapolis that knew anything about Jewish law, when they looked at the two demon-possessed guys running around the tombs, here's what they would have thought unclean, no hope. Because they don't, you don't even go and touch that. You don't mess with that. If something's unclean, what were you supposed to do? Hands off, right? When it came to the woman with the issue of blood, the people around of that day, what would they have thought? Unclean, no hope. Why? No one, no one was going to get in that mix. No one was going to touch that. This girl is dead. What would everyone have decided? Unclean, no hope, Right? You don't touch dead bodies. That makes you unclean. But what does Jesus do? Rolls into every situation and brings hope and brings healing and does what no one thought would have been possible. See, the idea of the clean and unclean was if you go touch something unclean, then that makes you unclean. But Jesus came and messed all that up. Jesus is like bleach, man. When you put bleach on something unclean, what does it do? Boy, it's clean now. Jesus flipped it on its head and reversed it. The the flow of power went the other way, right? There wasn't nothing going to make Jesus unclean. He was coming to make everything clean. What does that mean? Why does that matter? Does it matter? Oh, man, it matters. Big time. First of all, to you, it means you are not too dirty for Jesus to love and serve you and cleanse you through his sacrifice on the cross. That means no matter what anybody has said about you, no matter what lies you have believed about yourself, no matter what the enemy has convinced you of, no matter what condemnation you have sat under for how long, it doesn't matter. Demon-possessed guys were in the tombs a long time. This woman with the issue of blood, man, 12 years. 
unclean. What'd she find out? When Jesus rolled up on the scene, he made her clean. You are not beyond hope. Now let me say this to make sure I'm real plain. When Jesus comes and he takes those who everyone else would have gave up on or who gave up on themselves and he makes them clean, that doesn't mean that they just, they just stay wherever they were. Some of the things that were making them unclean, if those are choices and sinful behaviors and stuff like that, God loves us too much. He's not going to leave us like that. So don't let, me, don't let me only show you one side of the coin here. The other side of the coin is Jesus loves you so much when he makes you clean, when he comes and touches you and brings hope into your life, he's going to continue that process. But what we can't do is stay away from him thinking that we're going to do the cleaning process and then present ourselves to him. Jairus knew he had no hope. If he didn't get to Jesus, nothing was going to bring that daughter up out of that bed. This woman with the issue of blood knew that she had no hope. She'd already spent all she had. All the other options were exhausted. There was one chance. If I can get up and touch the edge of those clothes. Right? Those guys among the tombs, unclean. No hope. Only chance they had was Jesus coming up on the scene. So what this means, what this shows us is that You are not too dirty. You are not too dirty for Jesus to love you and to serve you and to cleanse you through his sacrifice on the cross. What it also means is that no one else is too dirty for you to love and serve them and point them to Jesus so that he can love and serve them and cleanse them through his sacrifice on the cross. We can rejoice greatly today in the fact that each one of us, no matter what we've believed, no matter what lies have been spoken over us or spoken to us, no matter, no matter what we've come to believe about it, how hopeless it seemed, how unclean we've determined that we are or others have, Jesus comes and he makes the unclean clean. I mean, this is, you're like, I don't know, man. Yeah, I see those three, but what, don't you... This is part of what was happening when, when Peter has the vision on the rooftop, man, and, 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 and the sheet comes down, and Jesus says, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter's like, oh, hold on. I've nev- I would never do that. And what does Jesus say? Don't call unclean what I've called clean. Come on now. What is he doing there? Is he just talking about eating, eating meat and animals and iguanas or whatever you want? No, man, that's not the whole point. That's part of it, maybe. But part of the point is Jesus came to make a bunch of stuff clean that no one ever thought could have been made clean. All the people groups, everyone that's, that, that those who were self-righteous would have pushed out to the margins and said, God could have nothing to do with you. Jesus came and showed them. I love them and them and them and them and everyone that you thought I wouldn't. And I can bring hope and healing and cleansing to all of them. That's you and that's the people that, whether you will say it out loud or not, you might think Jesus couldn't get to or wouldn't want to. Amen. Amen. Friends, this is, this is the hope of the gospel right here. That the Lord of glory, the servant king, can make clean what everyone else would decide was unclean. What maybe you've decided is unclean. And so I, I hope that as we move out of this set of verses that we let what, he's, what he did in Mark 5 just resonate in our hearts and minds as we move through life the hopeless, the ones no one else wanted to touch. Those are the ones Jesus came and made sure he got in the mix with and did things no one thought was possible. He loved them and he served them and he made them clean. Praise God. How'd he do it? Well, 
in these situations that we see, he, he did it by bringing deliverance in those situations. But ultimately, how he has done it for all of us is by dealing with the uncleanness, dealing with the problem of sin that makes us unclean by dying in our place for our sins, right? That's, God is a holy, perfect God. God is, we, we talk about Jesus and his compassion for everybody here, and that's, there's some people like, ooh, that's awesome, but then, then we say, but also God is a holy God of judgment who cannot tolerate sin. It's like, ooh, I don't, I don't like that one as much. You don't get to do that. He's both. He's loving and compassionate. And he's holy and just. But how do you, how do you, how do, what do you do with those seem to be diametrically opposed? No, they're not. They can come and they can embrace at the cross and find fulfillment, both. The loving compassion of God is fulfilled in Christ dying upon the cross. And the justice and the holiness of God is fulfilled by Christ dying on the cross. Yes, sin is bad. It's, it's, there's, we don't have words to describe how terrible sin really is. The cosmic treason that mankind has committed against God, we, we can't fully even describe that. And yet, and so, so, so somebody's got to pay the price for that. And Jesus did on the cross. God took the hit we should have taken. And he can make all things that in and of themselves are unclean, he can make them clean. How does that happen? How, how do you go from unclean to clean? It looks very much like Jairus dropping down. Lord, please. What was he doing in that, in that posture? Declaring what? I can't do this. I need you to come and touch my daughter. This woman with the issue of blood, to get down to touch that garment, what'd she have to do? And what's she doing in that posture? She's saying, I can't. nobody else can help me. I can't do this. I need you. It's a humble acknowledgement of our need for Christ. And the Bible says if you'll do that, he'll answer. That your trust and your faith in his goodness and his power will never be rejected. You'll be saved by him. Hallelujah. Is that not good news we can share, friends? I hope we do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you for Mark 5. God, thank you that your word is so much richer and deeper than sometimes we notice at face value. God, this, there's this theme that runs through this whole chapter. You're, Lord Jesus, you were going and you were, you were bringing hope and healing to people that everyone else had decided was unclean and had no hope. God, help us translate that truth into our lives, into our own hearts, in the way we think about ourselves, but also in the way we think about others. God, thank you for the contrast. Thank you that you brought healing to Jairus' daughter, a, a wealthy, well-to-do family, but you also brought healing to this woman who was destitute and poor, and that, you, you didn't, that, that wasn't a determining factor for you on whether you were going to meet their needs. But you, didn't, you, you didn't let that determine whether or not you were going to love them and serve them. God, please continue to break down the false divisions that our enemy puts up between us. God, help us not be so foolish as to Think that righteousness is tied to bank accounts or socioeconomic status. Help us, Master. Please help us. Please rid us of all of our foolish stereotypes, God, the things that we've bought into. God, help us walk as loving servants, bring the good news to as many people as possible that there's hope in you. Thank you. Thank you that you've entrusted us with this truth. Thank you. 
Thank you that you didn't give the job of telling this good news to the world, to the angels. Sometimes, Lord, I wonder why. It seems like they, they would have obeyed you better, but God, you've entrusted us, your children. You've involved us, your kids. And you've let us, you've entrusted us with this precious jewel to go and to share it and to let others see its beauty. Thank you for your gospel. God, please continue to stir in us a passion for sharing this gospel, for living this gospel above all else. Lord, may you be glorified as the the word that you've sown in our hearts today does not return void, but it changes us. And as we go from here and respond, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.